Welcome to this episode of the Culture and Equality podcast. My name is Gieselin de Kuipers and I curate this series. Today's episode features Dr. Jennifer Lina of Columbia University coming to you live from New York and Dr. Dave O'Brien from the University of Edinburgh. We're talking about inequalities in the production of culture. Why do cultural producers discriminate when they really believe they are open to novelty? Why is it so difficult for people of color or lower class people to enter the cultural industries? And how can we study such processes of exclusion in the cultural industry when people are not aware of them and will often adamantly reject the suggestion that they discriminate? Okay, so welcome to this uh, lecture that's part of uh, Sociology of, uh, of Culture and the series that's uh, happening all over Europe and, and now uh, happening in, in America as well. Uh, my name is Dr. Dave O'Brien. I work at the University of Edinburgh um, and I research um, the relationship between inequality uh, and culture in a variety of, of different ways. And I'm absolutely delighted on this episode where we're going to be discussing uh, the production of culture and inequality to be joined by Professor Jennifer Lena, um, who is coming to me live from New York, I believe. Yes, I am. Hello, everyone. My name is Dr. Jennifer Lena. I am Associate Professor of Arts Administration and Sociology at Columbia University. And uh, you may have encountered my work on research, my research on music. I've studied music and art. I have three books on those topics, including the most recent Measuring Culture, which I hope those of you who are studying culture and thinking about doing your own research projects will consult because we wrote it for you. Just to, to add an absolute endorsement of, of measuring culture, it's um, it's rare you get what, what we think about as a kind of something that isn't a textbook, but also um, at the same time is a kind of programmatic statement that can be used, you know, in class and particularly actually for undergraduates um, who are interested in asking questions about how you should study culture. Um, and and it, it's, it's funny in a way, isn't it, that um, within all of these different, I guess, traditions in sociology of, of thinking about culture, um, there are some, some core questions around what maybe methods we should use, how we should uh, conceptualize our object of study, and, and why that matters. And today, I'm sort of hopeful that we're going to crystallize some of those broader and more general discussions when we're thinking about the relationship between uh, the production of culture or cultural production and inequality. Um, and I suppose I've got a starting question for, for you, which is um, why this matters, why we might think um, understanding how culture is produced, how culture is made. Why is that kind of important, particularly actually in terms of its relationship to uh, social inequalities? Uh, it's, a, it's a big question. And so yeah. I'll only be able to hint at an answer, but let me give you some ideas about why particularly students might think about this. So one way is to think about it as a form of work and that we should be studying all forms of work especially in a situation like we find ourselves now where so many of us are out of work or are rethinking our careers in light of economic changes having to do with COVID. So we need to be able to study the work of creative people. And, and that's a little bit more complex than studying the work of lawyers, in part because 
creative people don't always work in full-time jobs or have linear careers. And so it's a much more complex topic. Um, so we need really good, smart scholars of work and careers to understand what's going on with the artistic labor force. A second reason we want to think about the production of culture is because we want to be able to think critically about what choices we actually have and what choices are taken off of our plate before we even know they exist. In other words, we want to be able to think about all of that culture that gets made, gets produced, but that consumers never encounter. And that might be because they're just locally distributed culture. It might be because there's censorship at play. So there are lots of reasons why thinking about the universe of all of the stuff that gets created and then the filtering process before it gets to consumers is really important to think about. As we'll talk about today, there are lots of moments in that process where even well-intentioned people might be making decisions that limit our choices as consumers in ways that we find really objectionable. Um, and a third is because I think the command of the study of sociology, the, the notion of what we're involved in, is to try and understand dynamic human relationships. And these moments when people are creating culture together are really key moments for social outcomes. I mean, these are the places where hit songs are being written that you're going to sing to your grandkids these are the moments when books are being written that then will later find their way into elementary school curricula and be required of all citizens to read. So these products can be so influential in our lives. I think we really want to have a good understanding of how they're made, who makes them, and how decisions are shaped in that process. I mean, that, that's such a, a perfect uh, overview. Um, and it introduces really uh, kind of wonderfully and, and sort of straightforwardly uh, the readings that we've uh, set for this week's class. Um, and I'll, I'll just give a, um, a brief uh, run through of them. So we've got a couple of chapters from a book called Culture is Bad for You, Inequality in the Cultural and Creative Industries, which um, I'm one of the co-authors of. Uh, there's a paper from Administrative Science Quarterly by Kopman called Different Like Me, Why Cultural Omnivores Get Creative Jobs. Uh, there's Childress and uh, Nolt um, in American Sociological Review on Encultured Biases, the Role of Products in Pathways to Inequality. And then there's a chapter from your book entitled Discriminating Tastes and the Expansion of the Arts. Um, and that that's enough reading uh, from me. Um, I think... The point you made around um, thinking about work and particularly thinking about how we study these forms of um, whether we call them industries or occupations, whichever um, industrial lens we'd like to use, it, it is really something that uh, myself, Orion, and, and, and Mark tried to grapple with in Culture is Bad for You. And it, it was something that we tried to kind of flag up in the book that there were really kind of significant inequalities in the workforce of a variety of different cultural occupations um, in, in Britain's um, cultural and creative industries. And so, you know, we see things like uh, a relative uh, absence of people of colour um, across virtually every creative occupation apart from working in the IT industry, um, things like the film industry have got really kind of catastrophically low levels of women in, in key 
um, occupational uh, positions. And then there's a really serious, um, I guess, what the British would be comfortable calling a, a kind of a class problem, um, a, a, an absence of those from working class origins. Um, and maybe, you know, kind of more generally in sociology, we talk about uh, the stratification of those uh, occupations and, and how particular elites dominate things like, say, the publishing industry or, or the museums and galleries occupations. Those um, kind of broad patterns in the labour market are something that we in the book really struggled to to kind of try to explain. And one of the things that motivated our, our work was, you know, trying to understand how we'd explain uh, these uh, patterns of, of inequality. And the other half of the reading from that book uh, gives examples of people's kind of experiences and, and their stories about their careers of discrimination. And I think, you know, examples of discrimination are one level of explanation. But then, as, as we're going to see with our two uh, papers that, that we, we've, we've set this week, actually, there are things that are kind of more subtle. Um, and I suppose, you know, require a bit of uh, sociological um, digging to, to understand, to help explain why certain people get certain jobs and, and others don't. And I, I guess, you know, the, the, the moment here is, is, is Cotman's paper. Um, I, I'm, I'm kind of interested in your, your take on Different Like Me, because it's something that I use quite a lot in my own work. Um, and it's something that is really a kind of core paper um, to um, my, my teaching uh, over in the UK as well. You know, her idea that um, the way that particular patterns of tastes maps on to um, how employers might be receptive to individuals in, in areas like the design and advertising world what struck me as a really kind of um, important um, insight backed by pretty rigorous uh, sociological research. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Uh, Professor Kaufman's work is excellent without question. I think, um, I think maybe, especially for those of us who are new to thinking about how social stratification works, we might need to pause a beat to just absorb that point that you made a moment ago about the things that you can find when you talk to people versus the things that you can find when you look at large groups of people, maybe using some kind of quantitative data like answers to a survey. And it might surprise some of our listeners to, to realize that we actually can find some things in the latter case that we can't find out from talking to people. And several of the articles and chapters that you've chosen for today illustrate that really well. But I want to make sure that it's explicit that part of what's going on here is that there are things that um, there are forces, social forces that affect our behavior and our development, but are what we would say supra individual. They're social. And so we may not be in, we may not have a self reflexive awareness of how those things are impacting us. And I think both Kopman's article and the Childress and Nault get to this point a little bit. They, they show us how in looking at patterns over large numbers of individuals, we can see things the individuals themselves might not experience. Now in your second chapter, you've got narratives from individuals that illustrate these patterns. And so you can bring them to life. And it shows that some of these forms of discrimination are um, things that individuals experience and they can talk about them. 
But other things like cultural matching uh, might be so um, so encoded into our automatic ways of being that we would have trouble articulating or describing them. In fact, if somebody said to us that we were we were making these decisions and that they were discriminatory or that they were preferential, we might in good faith reject that explanation. I mean, I, I, absolutely, yes. And, and this is the, um, I suppose, the classic um, benefit or, you, you know, the real um, rich um, additional element that sociological research brings here. And it's precisely as, as you say, actually, that, you know, this is not one of those uh, moments where you can hold up a, a survey or hold up data from the labour market to say to someone, oh, you don't know what you're talking about or, um, you know, you're, you're wrong in, in your assumptions. But actually, you know, the best work in, in this um, area allows people, I guess, and this is maybe a hopeful point, but allows people to reflect on how it is that they might think that they're doing totally the right thing. You know, they might think that um, in, in some ways they're acting in pro-social or, or, or beneficial ways, but actually the, you know, the kind of uh, the assumptions they've got about how, say, structures work, about um, how they might be able to make a positive change, actually a, a butting up against or, or a kind of, you know, running into these broader, as you described, social forces. And, and actually, the, the, the Cotman paper is, is really interesting on that because um, those of you who listen to the um, cultural consumption um, lecture, uh, the discussion I had with, uh, with, with, with Dr. Hankinay, you will have understood the idea that, you know, now instead of rigid cultural hierarchies, we have a much more kind of... Um, seemingly open and you know eclectic hierarchy of taste particularly for for people um at the top of the uh, the social world you know our social elites uh, at least in the way they self-describe would hate to be described as kind of snobs and, and would very rarely you know be attached to what we might think of as traditionally uh, high cultural forms but as different like me shows that eclectic open meritocratic omnivorous whatever language you'd like to use to describe it that attitude when we're thinking about hiring is something that means that um, the same kind of people end up being hired by uh, the people who think they're making you know meritocratic open and um, kind of um, talent-led decisions it, it's really interesting I think that social forces point is, is really um, a perfect illustration of what's going on in that paper. And I, I love the way that you made that point about the strength of Kaufman's analysis, because I think we find it also in the Childress and Nault. I mean, I think the, um, the, this, uh, we, in, it, for many, many years, in order to analyze culture, sociologists and others assumed what we call a, a homology between your social position in society and your tastes, such that we could say simple statements like elite people like classical music. And it would make sense. And the average person on the street would understand what you were talking about, that you were talking about, you know, there's a certain kind of high social status that's associated with a certain kind of high cultural taste. And, and we can no longer do that 
because the way in which that homology works has shifted. But I think I would argue, and Kopman would as well, and I suspect many others, that we still have a form of a homology, but it's we have to use much more complex language to talk about it. Because it's still the case, in my opinion, and this is very much what the article, the argument in my book entitled is about. Um, it's still the case that people who are at the top of the status hierarchy have tastes that are at the top of the status hierarchy taste stratification system. It's just that that category doesn't only include classical music now. It includes Kende Wiley and uh, Carrie Weems and um, you know some African sculptors. It contains people who look very different and maybe had different life stories than the artists who used to create that elite culture. But the process by which they find um, an audience among elite people is very much the same process that yielded Mozart or yielded Hemingway or yielded, you know, so forth and so on. I mean, that so perfectly segues us to um, Childress and Nolte's paper. And, and, and actually, there are several things that are important about, about this paper. Um, one on a um, maybe a, a methods level is that they're interested in um, the cultural match, not between uh, someone doing the hiring and an individual being brought into a company or um, hired to do a job, but between um, whether we'd call them, you know, cultural intermediaries, to use a term from uh, the kind of uh, French sociological tradition, um, or, you know, more, more practically uh, commissioners, decision makers in, in the publishing world, and an object, you know, a, a, a book that they're going to take on. And I was so taken by the idea that, you know, seemingly we have this conception drawn from Lauren Rivera's work, but, but obviously uh, used in, in, in the Cotman paper of a kind of cultural match between hirer and individual. And we can take that and say, well, actually, doesn't another part of um, how culture is produced work in, in a really similar way so that's one really important thing but the other thing is is, is these biases and it, it's funny to read this paper uh, as someone who you know does a lot of research in this area and i suspect actually you know the, the the students on the course if they go back and read um some of the interview data in um the children's and not paper uh, maybe at the end of the course they'll you know immediately start to see the process of um whether you'd call it selection, uh, you know, discrimination in, in some ways, particularly around uh, race, the way that, to go back to your earlier point, this, you know, taken for granted kind of set of um, assumptions about the world and what works function. And it, I'm really interested in your, your take on those uh, two points, actually, the kind of the, the benefits of applying, you know, a sociological insight to something that has maybe, you know, not been done, um, in this case, commissioning and, and, and cultural object, but also how we can see individuals, you know, biases being played out and not make moral judgments about them, but, but bring to the fore how these are the uh, decisions and practices that mean that we get the kind of culture that we get. I think I'll, I'll t certainly tackle the second one first. 
because I want to pick up on something that you just said about the the you know the fact that this study brings us inside the decision making, but it's also allowing us to see the output of that, the consequences of all of those decisions accumulating, and and it allows us to see how individuals who are making the decisions are thinking about them, and in combining all of those points of view, we realize that the the real action is not discriminatory in the sense of seeking to exclude creators who are unlike the editors or the acquisition uh, people in publishing houses. There is a real intent in the words that we have to read from them, a really clear intent to not overstretch to um, the proverbial saying is to stay in your lane. So if your life experience allows you to uh, understand a certain set of life experiences, even though they're, you know, um, fiction, fictional experiences. There is some kind of liberal morality operating there to say, I don't want to pretend that I know what it's like to be an African immigrant in Brixton. So I wouldn't put myself up as the decision maker about whether or not a story about that person's life is good or not. There's a real, I think that progressive people will see a, a real affinity of sentiment there. But as they so ably show, the outcome is the same discriminatory outcome as when people who have a discriminatory intent are in that position, that deciding position. And furthermore, they show that the, the mechanism that makes this possible is the fact that we have this black box around how decision makers and culture make decisions. And so much of it and the explicit discourse, discourse about decision-making is that you have a gut feeling, that you have an intuition, that you have this kind of um, accumulated, uh, almost difficult to verbalize nose that allows you to say in Ashley Mears's work on fashion models, pick from the millions of women who could be runway models for your show, pick the quote unquote right ones. And that black boxing of that decision-making is partly because people who are in those decision-making roles have difficulty articulating how they make decisions and that some of it is beyond their ability to recognize. And I love that there's that tension in the Childress and Nault play in the children, Childress and Nault article. And I also think that it shows students very clearly where the frontier of research in our discipline is located. We have very meager information that um, takes all points of view that looks at these decisions both as a function of individual perception and as a function of their structural consequences. Um, and so I guess in that way, I'm answering your first question, which is to say, we need a lot more people who are going to be critical of any discourse that black boxes how taste or decision-making works. And we need a lot more people to study those processes in both really close in-depth kind of ethnographic or participant observation ways, and people who are willing to look at the entire industries or segments of industries as you have so ably done with your co-authors. I mean, you, you put me instantly in mind of um, Philippa Chong's um, recent book on on how reviewing um, works. And it, it, it's strange in a way, because I think we're at a moment where um, ex exactly as you've described, you know, there's really good work that's showing us how we can get inside these black boxes, how we can get kind of, you know, un under the skin of, of, of these decisions. And 
I suppose the risk is that they end up as kind of like, oh, that's about publishing. Or, you know, you mentioned uh, Ashley Mears as well, you know, oh, well, that's about the fashion industry. Um, or my colleague Sam Friedman has done some work on um, comedy. So it's like, you know, well, that's comedy or, or performing arts or whatever. And getting these kind of macro pictures, I think, across um, cultural and creative industries um, and you know the, the the production of culture itself as as a whole. I think is you know um, a, a grand project that uh, maybe isn't something any one academic could do, but is 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 something that I think is is really important. Which brings me neatly to your book. <laughs> which, um, I, I mean, we're not going to talk about um, kind of all of the book and and, and the set reading. Um, is, is something very, very particular this week. Um, because maybe what we've described is, I mean, pessimistic is, isn't the right language, but, you know, th- there is a sort of um, risk with sociological analysis where you're presented with an understanding of the world that perhaps hints at an alternative, but doesn't make that alternative explicit. And I think one of the things that Entitled brings to this conversation about the production of culture is an understanding of a moment in American um, cultural policy, arts policy, indeed American society, where there really was a different way of producing culture. Um, and I'm interested to, to hear about that, and in particular, actually, to use that to set up um, some discussion points for the students. Yeah, so... Great. So the um, the period in time I'm looking at in the United States history is very similar to the one we find ourselves in now in the sense that in the 30s, we were facing massive unemployment, depression, uh, the, the risk of millions of people not only being out of work, but being out of home. And the WPA, which is the focus of that chapter, was a part of a much broader jobs program where the government was essentially employing workers to keep the economy uh, somewhat operating. And for the arts, this was the first time that there had been any kind of public policy in the United States where, and I would argue is the only time in the history of public policy in the United States where we treated artists as workers. If you remember, this was how we started our conversation today about the value of the production of culture perspective is to sort of make sure that when we're thinking about how economies operate, we don't forget the fact that huge portions of our economy, as much as a third of the American public, works in the creative industry. So this is not a, a minor you know, part of our economy. It's incredibly important to say nothing of for the United States, for Great Britain, for Brazil, countries that export a lot of culture, how important that is for our export and our influence on um public opinion attitudes about our country from abroad. Uh, sorry, so I've gotten off thread a little bit. To go back to the United States and the WPA, you know, treating artists as workers was revolutionary. And one of the things that it did was it um, eliminated any possibility of discriminating between people who were very successful artists by any measure and those that were um, quasi-professional or locally producing work, uh, smaller scale producers, more like craft creators. So in, in, in it being impossible to discriminate between these two things, like think about it, it's the 1930s, you barely have computers, you've got to create this national jobs program. The paperwork alone is overwhelming. The Smithsonian has entire 
floors of their building that are dedicated to all the paperwork that was created to employ artists. So you really had to sacrifice some of the distinctions we would normally have in a jobs program about like qualifications. So as soon as we did away with that and allowed people who were by any reasonable measure creating culture to participate, we had all of a sudden a lot more diversity in the culture that was being created, which is to say it was always being created. It just wasn't being treated as what it was, which was cultural work. And so this flood of new material or material described in new ways comes into the public sphere in part because the program also had display as part of its purview. So it was not only that they were paying people to create art, they were also paying curators to make exhibits, they were paying theater producers to stage productions, they were allowing uh, federal and state spaces, public spaces to be used for the display of art. So people could kind of get it wherever they went. I mean, the, the, the typical example from the WPA projects that Americans would recognize is all of the murals that were put into post offices very mundane federal building that people go into with some regularity. And there they would encounter art and art that was often, if not already implicitly about local themes because of the creator's life experience. The commissions were often explicitly required to include local themes. So not only would you go into your local post office and see art on the wall, but it would be maybe an important historical figure from your community, a famous artist, a important uh, leader, civic leader, a past mayor, a series of indigenous people and their ways of life being depicted. So both the creators and the content ended up being both more diverse and also more particularistic to communities that maybe hadn't been presented in artistic depictions before. So, you know, this becomes a, an opportunity for elites to choose more broadly amongst things that are already being given the status of art. And over time, I argue later in the book, this accumulates into that particular form of, um, of, uh, of um, omnivorousness that Professor Kaufman is writing about in her article. But to the point of your question, you know, the intervention here was that the government stepped in where markets usually existed, and they removed a lot of those market intermediaries that would normally be in the system as a result. And so to the point that's being made in the Childress and Nault article, you know, if you take those decision makers out of their, their intermediary position you remove a stage of the discriminatory process. And I mean that in a totally morally neutral sense, like just decision-making equals discriminatory. Um, so in removing one step at which discrimination takes place, we have less discrimination in the system and what's produced is more diverse. Diversity cuts both ways though. And, uh, and this will be the last thing that I say before I pause for your, your questions and comments. Diversity cuts both ways because while the culture that was created in, in the era of the WPA was more diverse by any measure. It was also diverse in terms of quality. When you open the floodgates, yes, of course, you let a lot of dreck in. But, you know, the funny thing about cultural dreck is that, you know, someone's, someone's garbage right now is someone else's treasure. There's an audience for almost everything. And we have plenty of examples of art that was hated in its time and came to be celebrated decades or even centuries later. 
So there's really lots of good reasons why we want to promote the production of DREC. That's um, that, that's going to be a poster for the uh, for the new um, the WPA movement, the promotion <laughs> of DREC. I've, I've got maybe three uh, kind of questions that um, I, I guess one of them um, connects us to this big, you know, sort of discussion of inequality. One of them maybe I'll, I'll talk a little bit about because it's it's more practical. And, and then one of them um, brings us to, um, I guess, a kind of a, a real world moment. And, and the first thing I'm, I'm particularly interested in, um, and you've, you've sort of covered this a little bit already, is... One of the things about that moment in um, American cultural policy is that, um, as you've just described, actually, you know, it's held up as this kind of um, democratizing moment um, for, for for culture. And, you know, it connects up, as you say, you know, the idea of culture as work or labor, you know, being paid and supported, but also had these, you know, kind of benefits in terms of particularity of local representation, stuff like this. This, I mean, I'm going to crystallize this into a question which I'm almost certain you won't be able to answer, but I'm going to ask it anyway. How come this doesn't pay off in a a kind of a radically different cultural system? You know, why is it that I guess, you know, we're dealing with, um, as, as you've gestured to already, cultural elites who are homologous with, you know, social um, positions and forms of, of culture that still have that, that baggage of, of high, um, art attached to it. What, what do you think went wrong? Is it something about, you know, um, there's only so much you can do, even where you're, you're having these kind of, you know, major transformative interventions, you know, again, for the students to think through, you know, is, is there a limit to what, you can do to culture in terms of how it's produced and also what culture can do to social inequality? Yes. <laughs> uh, no, I, I just, um, so yes, there is a limit to what culture can do to affect inequality. Uh, I'm reminded as you set up this question of a very similar, but maybe more um concrete question I get asked all the time. And I get asked it about the rap music research that I did. The first sort of stage of my career was all research on rap. And and at that time, when I was doing that work, people would often ask about whatever they considered to be really um, violent or misogynistic rap, they would sort of ask about whether whether I would defend that dreck being in the system. Um, and whether uh, we should, in fact, censor that stuff because of its negative social consequences, the belief that this might encourage children in particular to think that this kind of behavior is appropriate behavior to adopt. And um, my answer to those questions is almost usually that culture reflects society. You know, the the culture that people can make, they can only make their their imaginations are limited by the circumstances in which they live. And so the choices that we have of how to represent social life are conditioned already. We, ha- we do not have infinite choices. And a lot of what culture products are doing are, is reflecting back the environment in which we live. I mean, it's one of the reasons why art historians are able to use um, the analysis of cultural objects to try and talk about the spirit of an age or the, the characteristic relationships within families that you see depicted in 
representational paintings or what have you. So I would say that uh, culture is much more effective in reflecting society than it is in changing society. And that is not a deficit of culture. I would make the same argument about politics, which is to say that politicians also play on a playing field where the rules are already set and the conditions already exist for change. In order to make dramatic changes in culture or in politics, we have to impact many more features of the social system than just that one area. So, you know, if you want to solve the problem of misogyny in rap music, you need to solve the problem of misogyny in culture in general. And that is the limiting factor on, on culture's ability to change society is that society is much more complex than just culture, includes many more actors and includes structures that impact multiple different areas of our life. And so the kind of, um, you know, you said earlier that we've got studies of this, uh, this black boxed discriminatory taste in Philippa Chong's work on book reviewers, in the work that we've read for today, in Sam Friedman's work. The fact that we have it in so many different aspects of cultural life, and I'll you know cut to the brief and say we find it in other industries as well, that points to an underlying factor that is larger than any one of those segments that deserves our attention if we seek to change things. Um, Culture will adapt to reflect that. I mean, th- this point uh, allows us to broaden out beyond um, the, the readings and the sort of it, it's a tricky and contested, um, I, I think, field as we um, draw a lens wider to think about um, precisely that relationship between culture and and society. And you know, to, to an extent, we have. Um, particular European traditions that, you know, are very comfortable with languages of kind of, you know, fields and capitals and stuff like this. Um, and then there's tradition in, in the States, which is much more to do with worlds, um, worlds in particular. And then, um, w- which is what I'd, I'd like to, to ask you about and, and, and have you maybe talk uh, us through, there's um, perhaps a more central and, and now kind of well-established um, approach, which is this idea of the production of culture. And, and we touched on this um, to, to introduce this week's uh, session when you really, you know, kind of brilliantly staked out what's uh, the kind of the problem and, and why we should care. But I wonder if you could give us a sort of um, potted history to contextualize what we've been talking about of this uh, production of culture idea. That's a great question and, and really smart of you to ask it at this juncture in the conversation. Um, so, you know, I, I have to start by saying all histories are written by the victors. And so this is a particularly partial history of the evolution of this line of thought. Um, the production of culture perspective grows up in, um, in the seventies and eighties, people start publishing it by the publishing this kind of work by the end of the eighties. And the inspiration was, a rejection of people who were schools of thought that were emphasizing single explanations for these kinds of outcomes. So technological determinists who wanted to say that the the reason that we were seeing patterns in popular music of the kind that we were seeing in that in that era were a function of the dominance of television, or particularly the dominance of MTV. We had rational choice economists who wanted to explain the variation in cultural products and what gets made as a function purely of economic dynamics. 
And then, of course, Marxists who are also sort of involved in single cause explanations to address the very things that interest us, the, the differences in what gets made culturally and what doesn't. Um, there are also people who uh, were seeking to develop a kind of uh, a statement of principles for the production of culture perspective. And here I'm thinking about early scholars. Um, Paul Hirsch's early work comes to mind. Richard Peterson's early work comes to mind. And Peterson in particular is worth further investigation if you're a student who likes this way of thinking, this kind of research, because Richard Peterson is very closely associated with the production of culture perspective in America. And he argued that the way to think about the production of culture, the scope of its work, is that people should be examining six factors that influence production. And I'll just lift, lift, list them briefly here. And the purpose of listing them is to illustrate to you this point that production culture scholars understand that culture is embedded within society and society impacts what culture we make through various different mechanisms, not all of which we might think of as strictly cultural in nature. So they talk about the importance of law and regulation. Um, we have, of course, censorship laws that impact what gets made, but there are other less formal kinds of uh, regulation that impact us, um, like uh, intellectual property law or copyright law. Um, they also point to the importance of economic factors. And here they think about it in a couple of different ways. There's like the question of what your market structure looks like. So how competitive is it? Um, what careers look like, whether it's necessary for you to have an internship before you can enter the work world, this might be a mechanism of discrimination. And I think your work points to that. Um, organizational structure. So I mentioned this point about intermediaries building off of the Childress and Nault piece. There are uh, A&R executives, artist and repertoire executives in record labels that are largely responsible uh, to be talent scouts. And so thinking about people who are within the organization that have that kind of decision-making power is really important. And also how careers are structured influences the production of culture. Um, for example, in the visual arts and in poetry, there might be a real emphasis on an artist developing their quote unquote signature style. I'm thinking here of Hannah Wall's research. And for those people, because they are trying to build a career and they believe that careers are built around a certain style, it will affect the production that they do later on. It will remove certain options for creativity that might have otherwise been on the table. So I think you can see in this kind of scope that production culture scholars are fundamentally sociologists, if not in name, that in, then in practice, because they are thinking about culture being embedded within these larger social systems. I mean, it, it's important to, uh, to stress that we can get quite hung up on, I mean, you know, you mentioned history being written by the winners, but, you know, we, we can get quite hung up on um, differences in um, different schools, different national traditions, um, and, you know, at the risk of angering both, you know, students and, and faculty involved with the course. I, I think, you know, you can draw comparisons with production of culture from the States 
the British cultural tradition, uh, cultural studies tradition that's talking about things like the circuits of culture. And to an extent, although, you know, it, it's slightly kind of different, um, the, the, the Borgesian approach to thinking about fields and how people enter fields and, and how they kind of make it or don't, particularly actually when you get into distinction and, and you get into um, certain ideas about who makes decisions and who, you know, kind of has has control over um, what sort of things make it get canonized. And, um, I think the, the field of cultural production is for students who are interested in reading Bourdieu in his most production of culture moment, that, that, uh, that book I think stands above the others in that it quite, it would actually work really well with the, if the Childress and Nault excited you, or if you're interested in Philippa Chong's work that we've mentioned about book reviewers, then the field of cultural production might be the right Bourdieu for you because he's really writing about how a certain literary style takes hold and then gains dominance within France. And it's illustrative of these patterns. It's uh, indicative that these patterns might be felt in other places. It's by no means something that could only be used or thought about by French citizens. So yes, absolutely belongs in that trajectory, in that, in that school of thought. And it is uh, much shorter than distinction. <laughs> it has that advantage, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I think we, we, we'll sort of move to, uh, to, to wrap up. And, and I think we've had, you know, both a great overview of um, some core texts, but also actually some of the, you know, kind of crucial schools of, of thought, um, hopefully as a complement um, to, to the kind of things that are going on in, in other parts of the course. I guess... I'd like to, to sort of reflect before we get into some student activities on the current moment and to, to come back to something that you'd, I think, gestured towards a, a couple of times, which, which is how maybe kind of uneven, um, whether they're cultural careers, genres, um, areas of, of creative industries how uneven sometimes the story is and it's quite interesting that there's a you know major concern about what we think of as like capital a arts you know say the theater industry in in many countries at the moment whilst at the same time um parts of the film industry particularly those parts that are able to take advantage of di digital forms of distribution are almost finding that this is their moment. And I, and I wonder um, if you might reflect on not the cliche of like, oh, what does digital mean? But are there any, I guess, kind of areas that are going are gonna to thrive under these conditions? You know, are, are there any areas where something like, you know, a, a major WPA intervention might be, if not counterproductive, but but almost it, you know, is kind of missing the point of the way that new modes of producing culture are emerging. I'm, I'm thinking, you know, for some um, theorists, most of whom are writing, you know, getting on for 20 years ago now, what we're seeing with things like YouTube would be part of this moment of, you know, democratizing and transforming culture through technology, whilst, you know, sociologists have come along uh, thinking of, of, say, Brooke, Brooke Duffy's work to say, well, hang on, you know, these digital spaces are still, you know, closed and, and full of hierarchies. So, yeah, I, I guess, you know, that question really is about, you know, are there um, those elements of, of digital distribution where 
um, we might be seeing something better thriving without um, government or policy support? It's a great question because it allows me to to point towards one of the the main sort of facts that we try to teach in my classes and generally in classes like the one that we're in right now, which is that the measure of thriving itself needs to be subject to question. And furthermore, that when we think about what thriving means in cultural industries, time and time again, we are referring to one of two things. One is thriving financially, and one is thriving artistically. And this distinction, you know, we see in artists' lives as well. I'm doing a project right now on uh, the occupational identities of creative workers. And time and time again, we see people who are choosing to identify with two different occupations. And one of them is the occupation that they find creatively fulfilling. And the other is the occupation that, for lack of a better word, pays the bills. And so people who are creative workers themselves are very familiar with this, uh, this double-headed notion of thriving. And if we bring that to your question about organizations or creative units and who will thrive and who will not thrive, I think, I think we need to bring that level of precision because in this uh, despatialized world, it seems to me that there are a lot of large organizations, both commercial and not, who will be able to thrive at least financially. They have the digital capacity already to transfer their intellectual property to digital streaming formats, to figure out a payment system so that they can generate revenue from it. Um, so there will be large organizations, both private and public, that will thrive because of their existing resources and because they have sufficient excess resources that they can change their behavior, they can change their strategy. Um, there will also be small groups of people, either you know, creative assemblages or small organizations that will be able to thrive. And they may be able to thrive artistically and financially, in part because their financial goals are so modest compared to large organizations, and because their... Um, their existing public is already responding dynamically to the limits of space, which is to say, if you are you know, creating avant-garde noise music, for some time you have been unable to host concerts of any kind in public because there simply isn't a concentration of people in most cities that's large enough to support booking your gig. So not only because their audiences and these producers are already attuned to overcoming the problems of geographic space and are already using this technology to overcome it, they may have the opportunity to artistically thrive because they don't have to devote a ton of energies or reorganize a bunch of people to devote them to the task of turning something not online into something online. The question of whether the large organizations thrive artistically is one I'd rather leave to people's subjective assessments that tends to, um, people tend to just have really durable feelings about whether they think those organizations already contain artistically vibrant stuff or not. And I'm not sure that I would be in a position to persuade them otherwise. But what you hear in my answer is that the big gaping middle is likely to suffer both financially and artistically. That's my, that's my prognostication. But I wonder, you know, you are very up close and personal with data from the UK right now. How, how much support do you find for my hypothesis? Yeah, I, I think I was just going to 
sort of chip in and, and, and agree, um, particularly um, where you have this almost sounds d- dismissive, doesn't it? But, you know, specific scenes will always find themselves and not to be too grand, but, you know, I, I think you can make a reasonable, you know, kind of almost sort of anthropological, almost philosophical statements about, you know, the production um, of, of culture being something that is part of how we define what it is to be human, you, you know, in, in every kind of possible, plausible facet of that. But as, as you've noted, you know, the movement from thriving in terms of there being a small scene that supports itself, that, you know, is, is sort of comfortable describing itself and drawing boundaries and, you know, carving out um, a, a space, um, whether it's in a, you know, an online space or, or in, you know, a physical space in a, a town or, or city. And then how we get to think about broader themes about, you know, we're in the golden age of television or, you know, th- these kind of, kind of narratives. You skip over immediately um Again, whether we'd call it, you know, the, the middle of, of of the space of the world of, of the field, but you skip over the reality of you know people who are doing these occupations or jobs as a combination of you know a job for remuneration and as their passion and because of you know particular motivations um, with regard to whether it's changing the world or you know contributing artistically aesthetically or whatever and really to, to some extent you know our research attentiveness should be there you know what we're seeing in the uk is um patterns whereby digital consumption through the television you know seems to be going up but even there, there's that same sort of stratification around people's class origin, their education levels, differences by by gender and, and, and race and ethnicity. We're seeing, you know, at the top end, the state supporting large theatres and large um, galleries and, and museums, whilst the very people that we think of as core to the production of culture, you know, particularly people who are freelance workers in the music scenes, in... Um, the theatre industry um, across, you know, maybe uh, nightlife and, and the nighttime economy, which uh, provides spaces for cultural scenes to emerge. They've been given little or, or no interest um, in terms of support and, and there's real fear for what's going to happen to them. And to come back to you know the, the thing you actually asked me about, this I think is partially driven by a problem with data because the way British national statistics work, there just isn't very good data on precisely the people you're interested in in studying at the moment, you know, trying to kind of carve out in um, the British labour market, who is a freelancer who is maybe working in an office, deriving the bulk, you know, maybe, you know, half or two thirds of their income from that kind of labour, or is maybe working, you know, in, in the service industry and in hospitality, and at the same time is a visual artist, a writer, a musician. Those people are really hard to spot in official statistics, and it's hard to get really good data about, say, what their income is, what kind of levels of support they need, their patterns of work. You, you can do it to an extent, but actually, it's something that is crying out for, you know, proper research. And in doing so, you know, by researching these things, and then this might be a grand claim for the 
sociological project. And it takes us right the way back to where we started. You make them visible. You know, you make them visible both as, say, problems in inequalities within forces that press down on individuals, but you make them visible as, you know, as, as things that might be subject to intervention, support, and, and social change. So, yeah, it's, you know, it, it's a worrying time, but it, it's also strangely a time where, you know, the, the kind of the project of uh, doing sociology about culture is, is really important. I think so, too. I think there's really no better time than now to um, begin to study these things. And I think also, you know, to the, the point about data and methods, it's important to recognize that you know, sociologists of culture are not all, um, you know, watching episodes of uh, The Simpsons to write an essay about themes in The Simpsons. A, a lot of us are also doing this work that's kind of central to economic planning, that's central to policy design, that's central to um, uh, political change and organizing. Um, and I think that in a lot of ways, we can in in following the questions that interest us we can encounter gaps in our knowledge about the world and identify them as potential sources of liberation and so although the work can seem at times particularly when we're thinking about like the work that you do or the project that i'm involved in looking at large data sets of artists as workers it can appear on the surface of it to be um maybe some people might think kind of dry but at the heart of all of it, I think those of us who are in this field are motivated to um, to help support and protect the things that make our lives beautiful and worth living. And many of those are captured under the word culture. I mean, it, it's so funny, isn't it, that, you know, so much of this work we, we describe as, as critical, whether with a, you know, a big or, or a small C um, and, and, you know, I sort of hold my hands up, you know, I'm one of the co-authors of a book that's literally called Culture is Bad for You. But our project is as much, you know, as, as you've said, a kind of a, a defense um, of culture as, as it is a, a critical intervention. But before I come back to you for, for a last word, I'm just going to flag up um, some students' activities for, for this uh, session. And hopefully, you know, you, you should be able to kind of think through or answer these these questions with the reading and, and what we've been been discussing today as well. And one of those things is a description of the production of culture perspective. You know, what it, what is that? Why does it matter? Why does it, you know, provide a kind of a useful framework? We might think about why it even matters, you know, how we structure the production of culture, who works in it, what the um, kind of political economy um, of, of organizational forms or businesses or state support is and, and indeed you know we could we could ask provocative questions like isn't this just a pure kind of oversupply of labor issue you know actually all of this stuff about you know social structures discrimination um, decision making actually the problem is is just too many people want to be actors artists writers etc I mean, I'm skeptical about that, but that you know, for, for you as, as students to to think through. And I guess finally, you know, the big question going beyond what the consequences of of maybe the stratification of cultural production or, or inequalities in, in the labour force, however you describe it, is this question about how we could do things differently. And I'm kind of hopeful that um, we, we've covered some of that today. Now, to, to wrap up. 
I'm sort of interested um, in if there's whether um, a, a kind of like a a text we haven't read or, you know, a particularly kind of interesting research question or, or a, um, a future maybe direction that you'd use as a, as a concluding point. Um, or do you think we've covered everything today? I mean, I think we've given people a lot to think about, maybe too much. And I will apologize now a little late in the game for how quickly I was speaking I recognize those of you who uh, are not New Yorkers may find that really un- unfortunate choice on my part. So I apologize. Um, yeah, I think there are, I mean, there are a ton of questions that personally interest me. Um, I hope that all of the students who are listening to this will, will consider starting where I started when I was in graduate school, which is I wanted to know how do you make a hit song? It had a very sort of ordinary practical question. It just seemed to me like if sociology was in the business of figuring out the basic grammar of social life, the the kind of structure that allows individual expression to take shape, um, that it might be able to give us a recipe for how you create a hit song. And I think for myself, I found an answer that was adequate, but I think I would encourage students to... uh, to take a question like that, maybe something that they think is settled in their own minds, like they're certain that they know why Tupac is a better rapper than Biggie, and see if they could apply the production of culture perspective to generate a different answer or an answer using different means. This concludes the conversation between Dr. Lena and Dr. O'Brien about inequalities in cultural production. So after listening to this podcast, this is what I can't let go this week. First, that increasing diversity increases the amount of dreck and that that's a good thing. Second, that it's really not that easy to decide what it means when culture thrives and how we can find that out. Third, and finally, that this current crisis will increase inequalities between cultural producers. It will probably not harm the really, really big powerful ones or the very, very small independent ones. But the large middle section of artists, musicians, writers, designers, performers, and many others will be hit hard by this crisis. This is not only the largest group, but also the most diverse in terms of social background and in terms of the culture they produce. So in the production of culture as in most social forms, this crisis will not only increase inequalities, but it will also hamper diversity. Thank you for listening to this, and we will hope to welcome you back to our next podcast. 